when Jesus asked those Pharisees this question. Really, the question is a masterpiece about the identity and nature of the Messiah. It occurs while those Pharisees were still assembled before him. And we find that there's a marked shift now in what Jesus is saying concerning his Messiahship. For example, early on throughout his ministry, Jesus avoided open public acclaim that he would be the Messiah. But now things are different. Now things have changed in the last week of his life. Now, you know, the Pharisees, as they would be listening to the question that Jesus would ask about the Messiah, they would have known that this was not an academic or theoretical inquiry, but the supreme question concerning his own person. Broadus raised an interesting point about asking this question, and no doubt everything Jesus says was absolutely brilliant. Broadus said this about what Jesus says. He said, Jesus is actually defending himself against the charges that will be brought later to him, on him in the week. Soon he will stand before the Sanhedrin for saying he is the Christ, the Son of God. Thus his question might be aimed at establishing the fact that the Messiah, though descended from David, cannot be just a mere man. So here's the question. Here's the passage before us. What do you think about the Christ? You know, I think that's a very relevant question. What do you think about the Christ? I think it's relevant today too. Jesus says, what do you think about the Christ and whose son is he? Now, those two questions are these. What do you think about the Christ and whose son is he? Now, they're going to respond. They're going to say the son of David. Now, the question is this. From what Jewish family line was the Messiah going to come? Now, they all knew what the, where the Messiah would come from. They all knew that it would be from the royal lineage of David. In fact, every Jew understood that. They knew that. That we would come after that, after that bloodline. In fact, in uh, John chapter 7, verses 41 and 42, others said, this is the Christ. But some said, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David? And from the town of Bethlehem, where David was. Another passage, Luke chapter 1, verses 31 and 32. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. That's why they answered the way that they answered in chapter 22 and verse 42. They said he is the son of David. Well, the question is this, though. How will Israel then know which of David's descendants would be the Messiah if God did not give any other criteria? If it was just going to come from the fleshly bloodline of David, there were many men that could have fallen into that category. Men like Solomon. What about him? What about Hezekiah? In other words, of all the men that followed the fleshly bloodline of David, there's got to be another criteria. There's got to be something that's going to set that Messiah apart from all other descendants of David. And the Lord is setting all this up. But Jesus not only fulfills the human criteria, he also fulfills the divine criteria. Jesus is called the son of David, and he is also the son of God. Now, 
He is the son of David, meaning he meets the criteria of coming from the fleshly bloodline of David, showing this, that is the humanity of Jesus Christ. Just like when the Bible says 80 times in the Gospels, it calls Jesus the son of man. It's talking about the Messiah. It's talking about the human part of the Messiah. He fulfills the divine criteria in that he is the son of God. He is both. And Jesus is the Messiah because he fits all of that. He is both the son of David and he is also the son of God. You know, what's interesting here. If you ever stop to consider these passages the Pharisees rejected him as being the Messiah, no doubt. But they seemed to accept his human lineage. They never say that he was not from the lineage of David. And you know, it's very interesting. John MacArthur wrote this about this in his commentary on Matthew. I think it's interesting. He said, it is therefore certain that the authorities had carefully checked Jesus' genealogy and discovered that his descent from David was legitimate. Otherwise, they would have simply exposed him as having no claim to Davidic heritage and all discussion about his possible messiahship would have ended. You know what I read? I read that before the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, they kept absolute meticulous records regarding all of their lineage, regarding their heritage. And you know where it was kept? It was kept in the temple. You know what that means? That means you don't have to go online and try to figure out where you came from. You know that all that heritage stuff today? Yeah, you, don't have to, you didn't have to do that. If you were a Jew, all you had to do was go to the records. And the records were kept before AD 70, before the destruction of Jerusalem. And they were kept meticulously right there in the temple. So no doubt, they didn't, they didn't doubt that Jesus would have fallen suit or fallen into the royal bloodline of David. They just recognized him being the Messiah. So, in verse 43, he said to them, How then does David in his spirit call him Lord? Now, what Jesus is going to do now is Jesus is going to reflect. He's going to quote in just a moment. He's going to make a direct quote from Psalm 110 and verse number 1. So what he's showing is this. Yes, David was the fleshly bloodline. But he said this. Jesus says... How say to them, does David in the spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the psalmist David, call him Lord himself? How does he call him Lord himself? David calls the Messiah his Lord. And such language can only intimate one thing. That David thinks the Messiah is greater than he is. That the Messiah is greater than David. But how can the Messiah be both David's descendant and David's Lord at the same time? How can the two be compatible unless the Messiah is God-man or God in the flesh? No doubt. And that's the next verse. This is what David said. Dave, the Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. You know, this is a direct quote from Psalm 110 and verse 1. And I got to tell you. The English reader looks to these two words here, Lord here, and Lord here, and it may seem confusing, but it's not confusing at all. In fact, you know what? They're different words. The first word, Lord here, this is David, the psalmist David, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, Psalm 110, verse 1. He says the word, Lord. That word 
is the Hebrew equivalent to the Hebrew word Jehovah or Yahweh. That's the name of God. That's God's name. What he's saying is, David is saying there's two people, there's two beings that are greater than I am. The first one is Lord being Yahweh or Jehovah. And incidentally, did you know that in the English translation it renders the word Lord in all capitals and there was a reason for that. The Jews felt like God's name was so great that they could not call him Jehovah, they could not call him Yahweh, they couldn't say his name. So you know what they did? They called him Lord, all capitals. That's the first Lord. What about the second one? Do you remember hearing me say over the years, I know you've heard it because I say it a lot. When Jesus would talk to people in his personal ministry and they'd call him Lord, like the scribe that said, Lord, I will follow you anywhere you go. And you've heard me say over and over and over, that is not mean, does not mean that they accepted him as Lord and Savior. It's the word didaskalos. It's a term of respect, but they're not saying he's the Lord. And what that means is it's translated in three English words, master, teacher, or Lord. Okay? That's not this word. This word is the name for Jesus. This word here is the word Adonai, and it means master. It means one above another. You know what David said, the psalmist David in Psalm 110 and verse 1? He said, God said to Jesus, sit on my right hand. And Jesus would triumph over all of it, over everything. Where's Jesus today? Oh, he's on the right hand of the throne of God. He is sitting on his throne. He is reigning over his kingdom. And the kingdom is the church. You know what's going to happen when it's all over with? He's going to take the kingdom and hand it back over to Jehovah, Yahweh, God of heaven, God the Father. When it's all said and done. So, we're talking about David. And David is not as great as Jesus and Jesus, being the descendant of David, is still greater than David. But the question is this. How could the Messiah be David's son and also be, at the same time, be David's Lord? If then David, and Jesus says, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Now, incidentally here, he doesn't say, how is the Messiah David's Lord? But he's saying, how is the Messiah David's son? Jesus now returns to the humanity of the Messiah. The Jews believed that the Messiah would come from the royal bloodline of David. So in other words, here's the problem. If David was in the flesh, then the Messiah would also be in the flesh. And they didn't see past that at all. Do you remember when they came into Jerusalem? Do you remember when they did that and they were on that long road into Jerusalem? Perhaps coming from Jericho before the Passover. Have you ever stopped to consider how many people were following Jesus because they thought he was going to establish an earthly kingdom? Remember when Jesus was asked questions like, when are you going to establish the kingdom? And, and, and where am I going to be in that kingdom? Not understanding that Jesus was not talking about a fleshly, earthly kingdom. How many people followed Jesus because they thought the whole thing was going to be just a matter of in the flesh? That he would establish his kingdom in the flesh. Well, in Psalm 110 and verse 1, David called the Messiah his Lord. He recognized the Messiah as deity. And the only way that Jesus or the Messiah can be both deity and man is if deity came from heaven. 
to be that. In John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And in verse 14 it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Are you getting the point? They understood the fleshly lineage, but Jesus had to talk about deity now. He had to talk about the deity part of the Messiah. And the only way that that can happen is when God the Son came from heaven to be all of that. Now, I'm going to tell you, how many times did Jesus answer questions and people stood there with their mouth open or stood there in dead silence not saying a word? Just staring. Just staring. You know what happened? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare question him anymore. That is the ultimate. They had nothing to say. They had absolutely nothing to say. One scholar said the silence must have been deafening as the Lord spoke those words. Once again, the young rabbi from Galilee destroys all of their expectations about the Messiah. Destroyed it all. And they were silent. But you know, instead of submitting to the divine word that the Lord was speaking, they just retreated in silence. And I got to tell you, that happens even today. That happens even today. People hear the truth of the word of God, but then they just do nothing and depart in silence. In other words, not being moved by the word of God. They're, they hear it, but it doesn't change anything in their heart. Nothing at all. They hear what Jesus has done for the world, for the sins of the world, for their sins personally. But it has no effect. And they just go away in silence. I think that happens today a lot. Happened then too. And we're not talking about ordinary folks. We're talking about the religious elite. We're talking about the most religious people in the world. You know what they did? Said nothing and left in silence. Matthew's account says this. No one asked any more questions as their own moral poverty had been exposed. Their professional incompetence was made manifest and now it was time to go. And they rejected him and the rejection and silence was louder than words. But to others that were present, their response was very different. I got to say this really quickly, and I promise not to spend a long time on it. But just give me a minute. You remember in John chapter 8 when Jesus told the most religious people in the world they're going to die in their sins? He said, where I'm going, you can't go. He said, you're going to die in your sins, but they didn't get it. They didn't get it. What about the other people, though? There were other people that were listening to that great sermon by the greatest preacher the world ever knew, and they believed, it said. Many others believed. So Jesus is speaking to those people and the religious elite, and they rejected Christ, and Jesus says, you're not going to heaven, I'm going. You're going to die in your sins. But others believed. Guess what? Same thing happened here. Look at this. Let's go to Mark's account now. I love this. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How is he his son? Now, 
The phrase common people can be misleading if you look at the two words common people in our English language. I'm going to tell you what went through my mind a little bit before I actually looked up the words. What went through my mind, I'm trying to think of maybe the, I don't know, were they the not so smart folks? Were they the not so wealthy folks? It, are, are they just, I mean, what is it? Who falls into the category of common people? Two words in the original, and this is what it means. Translated common people in this translation, but it literally means this. It means a huge crowd or a great multitude. So Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, and they to return, and they depart in silence. But when they heard a huge crowd, a great multitude, heard the word, heard the Lord gladly. You know, at the end of his ministry, it was quite similar to the beginning of his ministry when there were many that would follow Jesus. Plummer said this, they liked the freshness of the method and the skill in which he answered questions. They perhaps enjoyed hearing the professional teachers routed, and some may have appreciated their spiritual strength of his instruction. So he's talking, and guess what? Great multitudes are listening, and they're hearing him gladly. And you know what? This is what he says. Then he said to them in his teaching. That phrase means this. In the course of his teaching, he said. Now get that. It was a day of questions. He shuts them all down. Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, scribes, all of them, right? He keeps on preaching. He just kept on preaching. And in the course of his teaching, you know what he said? Oh, by the way, beware of the scribes. Why would he say that? Beware of the scribes as he's preaching this great sermon. He points out that outwardly they're very different. Outwardly they look important, but inwardly they're bankrupt, they're corrupt. And may I say that if a, if a person is or a person's weighing his importance based upon his outer garments the uniform he wears, the title that he has, the name that he goes by, whatever it is, that is very superficial, that is very artificial. And true importance, like one scholar said, can only be measured by a man's character. Character determines your importance. I'm going to tell you, you could be a person of character. Character is everything. And may I say, character is tested when you're up against it. If you want to know what kind of character you have, if you're tested and you're up against it, that's the character that you have. That's you. That's me. These guys, not so much. Not so much these scribes. They were arrogant, selfish, insincere, and dishonest. And then Jesus lists six items that reveal evil tendencies in them. You know what the first one was? They desire to go around in long robes. What's the big deal? Well, we know that outer garments were called tunics. The Lord, for example, and his disciples, they would have had a shorter outer garment than these long robes. In fact, that's what people wore. If you're an average person, a regular guy, you wore a regular tunic. These guys... They wanted to go around, first of all, with a desire to have a long robe. You know who wore the long robes? The ones that wore the long robes were kings and priests. And the robe went all the way to their feet. But notice, it goes further. 
They desire to go around. You know what history tells us about them? They would go up and down the streets of Jerusalem like they're really somebody. You've seen somebody like that perhaps with the arrogance and conceit wanting the world to think they're really somebody. And usually people that really are somebody don't care if people think they're somebody. They just know they are and character determines that and that's just what they are. Not these guys. Oh no. They wanted to go around with these long robes looking like they're going to do something great. Look at me. I'm an important guy. And then Jesus goes further. And he says this. They love long greetings in the marketplaces. Now this doesn't mean they like to have people come up to them and say hello. In fact, greetings in the New King James is translated salutations in the Old King James. You know what it means? It didn't mean, hey, how you doing? Good to see you today. It meant this. Long-winded worldly compliments. That's what that means. They went around with these long robes in Jerusalem like they're really somebody, and they wanted the long compliments from other people. They wanted different titles and phrases too. You know what they were? They were these. Rabbi. Rabboni. Abba. Now, there were times when Jesus was called rabbi. You know what a rabbi was? What's a rabbi? A rabbi is a Jewish scholar. That's a Jewish scholar, rabbi. They wanted that title. You know what else they wanted? They wanted this one too. And Jesus was called Rabboni. Rabboni literally means master teacher. Now, it's fitting that Jesus would be a scholar and it's fitting that Jesus would be the master teacher. What about this? They even wanted that. Do you know what Abba is? It is an intimate phrase or an intimate word for God. They even wanted that. Jesus says, beware of those guys that go around in these long robes. They want to be called all this stuff in the marketplace. Beware of them. But it gets worse. You know what else they wanted? They wanted the best seats in the synagogues. The best seats in the synagogues. You know, I read that the best seats in the synagogues were the chief seats. And it was a place where it was located at the Jerusalem end of the building. Okay. And at the Jerusalem end of the building, there was an elevated platform area. You know who stood on the platform? The scripture reader or prayer leader. So where did they want to be? Now, keep this in mind. They wanted to have this position. That means this. You got all the folks like you are right out there sitting in your seats looking toward the platform area, the elevated area for the scripture reader and prayer leader. Okay? You know where they wanted to be? Right here. Right in front of it. Right with their backs against the platform. And that was a picture or that was a place where you put the dignified people. Now I have to share something with you. In the Philippines, I don't like it. It's uncomfortable. And for 11 years, it's extremely uncomfortable every time. I don't like it. But out of respect, because they consider the Americans that come uh, with high esteem when we're really nothing. And they want to put us in that same spot, facing the audience. I got to tell you, it's so uncomfortable that I always turn my chair. I try to turn my chair so I'm looking at the speaker. It was Don that to that time, not me. I don't like sitting there. Okay? But there's a big difference. They want us to go there where the problem would be and we'd be guilty of the same thing as if me and Don come rolling in and said, nope, we want the best seats. Put us right here in the front. That's what they wanted. 
That's what they insisted on. By the way, I just say, say this as a, as a aside with that. What I always try to do, what we try to do is get the Filipinos to go with us. And I'll sit up there if they go with us. I'll do that. I have no problem with that if they go with us. But that's just their way of showing respect. Okay? That's a big difference in somebody demanding it. What else? How about this? How about the best places in the feasts? This is a place of honor at banquets. In fact, that phrase, the uh, places, is better translated chief couches. And it's talking about this. Ed Edersheim said this. Edersheim said, according to the Talmud, the chief guests lay in the middle if there were three on a couch. If there were two, he lay on the right side of the couch. Now, you're talking about the best seat, the best one. Reclined with the, the person that did the inviting. And you know what they wanted? They wanted the best seat. You know what James talks about, about that? He said, don't do this. Don't ever assign the best seat to the rich and leave some poor man on the floor. He condemned that. These scribes, you know what they did? They demanded and wanted the best places. So what did they do? They came in. They wanted the long robes. Look at me, look at me, look at me. They wanted the title and the great greetings and salutations. They wanted that too. They wanted to have the best seats. They wanted all the greatest names. They wanted to go to the best the feast and have all this respect shown their way. They wanted all that. And I'm going to tell you, that's bad enough, but it doesn't stop there. That's not the worst part. All that's bad enough. But the Lord's just getting started. In fact, in Mark chapter 12 and verse 40, you know what they did? And I got to tell you, this is awful. They devour widows' houses. They devoured widows' houses. You know, no doubt there was women in the ministry of Jesus that listened to his teaching and followed Jesus and wanted to minister to him or serve him in some way. There's no doubt in my mind that's exactly what they did for Jesus. But there's also no doubt in my mind that they did that for the scribes too, just maybe. I'm going to tell you something right now. It's one thing to take advantage of somebody. And uh, I, I know I'm giving degrees here and I shouldn't. But it, it is another thing when you take advantage of a widow. A poor little old lady. And you take what's hers. The scribes exploited their generosity. In fact, widows are especially targeted by the scribes. Jesus does not explain specifically how this is done, but in some way, the scribes take advantage of these poor women and rob them of their support. And notice, and for a pretense, make long prayers. For a pretense. For a show. They offer long prayers. They pretended to pray long time in order to gain influence over religious people. i got to tell you something about long prayers. There's nothing wrong with a long prayer. Okay? Nothing wrong with that at all. When you pray from your heart and you pray a long prayer. There's nothing wrong with that. But the Jews back then and these specific scribes, this is what they believed. And Plummer said this. There was a rabbinical saying that long prayers make for a long life. Now... When Jesus condemned long prayers of the Pharisees, he was talking about men that wanted to hear themselves. They wanted to be known for their much speaking, and they wanted to hear themselves talk. May I just say a little 
thing here add? And that's when we, we pray the public prayer. When the man prays for the congregation and the assembly, we are praying for everybody. So we need things that are applicable for everybody. Okay? And we don't have to pray an especially long prayer. You can just pray and, and, and get things covered and pray from the heart. Okay? A longer prayer does not mean a better prayer. You know what they were doing, though? Jesus put it all together. Jesus said they devoured widows' houses and as a pretense pretended to get all the influence by pretending to pray these long, heartfelt prayers. Now, the Amplified Version renders it like this, and I think it's really true. I think these two things are connected. I think the devouring widows' houses and making the long prayers are connected. The Amplified Bible says it this way. Who devour widows' houses, and to cover it up, they make long prayers. How about that? How about that? You know what Jesus says, and I have to tell you, I had to really think about this. I had to really study this. Okay? I really had to study this. Jesus is going to sum it all up. And if you look at the verse, you know what's coming. What does he mean? All of these that are going to do all of this, they're going to receive greater condemnation. Okay? Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that there's a special spot in hell that is hotter than another spot? No. Does it mean that there is a secondary or even a worse place for the really bad people? No. We know that there is only one lake of fire. We know that. And if a person's lost, they're lost. And there's only one lake of fire. Even though I have said, when somebody does something really bad to somebody, I've even said it. I confess, I, I've said it. Uh, there must be a special spot in hell for a person like that. I've said that, okay? I don't read any of that anywhere. You might say, now wait a minute, preacher, wait a minute. What does it mean when the Bible says it's worse for someone that has been enlightened by the gospel, has lived as they should for a time, but have quit the church and gone back. The Bible says it's worse for them than somebody that didn't know and they were just lost. Okay? What that means is this. If I quit, if I quit, and I quit the church, and I go back to the world, and I am lost, and I die in that lost condition. You know why it's worse for me? Because I'm going to know for eternity I didn't have to be there. I'm going to know for an eternity that I had the truth and I, and I turned back. And do you know what I'm going to want more than anything in the world? One more day. Just give me one more. And I'm going to get it right. One. One more day. What's it mean, the greater condemnation? What's it talking about? Same hell, same lake of fire, same place, right? Okay. This is the best way that I can explain it. I hope it's clear. Receiving the greater condemnation doesn't mean that the sentence is any worse than anybody else's sentence that's in the same place. Okay? It's kind of like this, though. Have you ever seen a judge sentence two men to the same sentence? 
Maybe one of them just fell into the three strikes rule. Now they got life in prison. Maybe because of carelessness or whatever they did in the law states, three strikes, you're out. Now you got life, whatever. And they get the same sentence as some mass murderer creep. Still got life in prison, for example. What's the difference? When the judge looks at that creep and tells him about what he did. When he looks at him and says, it's worse for you. It's awful for you. Have you ever seen some one judge ball somebody out as they're sentencing them? I have. Chew him out. You no good rotten. I mean, he's not adding to the sentence. It is what it is. It's life. But that guy is getting the greater condemnation. In fact, you know what that word means? word means this. Condemnation means it applies to the estimate that the Lord will place on the wrong deeds of these men. In other words, they're going to be lost with all the others that are lost. But the Lord, in his estimation, is going to put a greater emphasis on what they did. And by the way, Jesus will be the judge. That's the only thing that makes sense, folks. That's the only thing that makes sense. These scribes were using the mask of religion to serve the devil. They were doing that. They were doing that by saying they were taking advantage of those poor widows and for a pretense made long prayers by way of influence. And I'm going to tell you something, folks. There's a lot of people in the religious world that are taking advantage of people. It really is. I wonder how many widows today, I wonder how many widows send $5 a month to some guy somewhere. I just wonder. Or $10. And they get on there on TV and they pull at the heartstrings of these wonderful, wonderful ladies. And they want to try to be a part of it so they send what they've got. All the while, for a pretense, making long prayers, they take whatever they can get. Jesus says there's greater, they will receive a greater estimate of what they've done. And he calls it condemnation for doing just that. All right, I'm finished today. We are almost done with Tuesday. Okay, we got a little bit left on Tuesday. And then we'll progress through the rest of the week. Some powerful teaching the Lord has made all the way through on this particular day. It's been quite a day. It's been quite a day. We'll talk about the next thing, um, the next uh, Lord's Day. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m., and 5 p.m., and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.